everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine. It is the first of the year of 2024. Happy New Year. It is the first week of January, and we have so much going on that we are going to talk about the week's hottest legal topics. And we are off to a great start. For goodness, we're going to talk today about immigration. Um, Texas laws recent enacted, recently enacted regarding immigration and whether that is actually legal, the lawsuit that has been filed by the federal government against Texas, as well as the updates on the Trump cases, including the Colorado court that has, um, the Colorado case that has been accepted by the Supreme Court for review, as well as as the presidential immunity issue going through the Court of Appeals in D.C., um, and a couple other things along the way. We might hit the, the issue of the Harvard presidency as well as, goodness, we, we've got a couple things up our sleeves. So if you're interested in the law and in politics, stay tuned with us through the exciting um, New Year's Legal Weekly Wine. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer. Tell you do. Tell you do. <laughs> and I have with me the um, eminent professor and expert in the Constitution, the amending process in constitutional law, Dr. John Vile, who's the dean of Middle Tennessee State University Honors College. Welcome back and Happy New Year. And to you. Thank you. And our audience. And our audience, yes. <laughs> and all those within the sound of our voice. Within the sound of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it's very exciting. And, and for everyone, please hit like and subscribe so that you can see our channel, um, keep up to date with our recent news and our weekly news regarding law and politics, um, as well as to get it seen by other people who may appreciate the same topics and conversation that we're having. Um, we are going to toast the new year and then get straight into our immigration discussion and then on to Trump. But have you brought some bubbly with you? I have. I have. I've never had it before. Celsius sparkling wild berry uh, energy drink. Excellent. I think this is the first energy drink other than Coke I've ever had. Oh. And my, I've had a couple sips and my foot is already <laughs> <laughs> going wild on me. Then maybe um, just another sip or two. <laughs> I, I did not realize until I got it home that it only has 10 calories. So I don't usually go for diet kind of things, but it, it's, it, it has a little bit of aftertaste as these things sometimes do, but it's pretty tasty. Wild berry is Excellent. my selection of today. Well, I'm glad. And I also brought some bubbly. Mine is of the alcoholic sort, um, but that's okay. I have brought um, a cava, a rosé cava, um, usually from Spain, and I think this one is too. I am so terrible at pronunciation, so I will not um, inundate our listeners and our watchers. What did you do with, with the money? That. I did not take Spanish. <laughs> I would make okay, more money. Any better in French? <laughs> yes. I would make more money with Spanish, especially being in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. I, I swear I would make double what I do. Um, and people who do have that skill are very valuable in this area. Immigration law is a big deal. It, it really is. And I've been told that many times. And still, it did over 40 age, it is very hard for me to pick back up the language of French and to even learn a new language. So props to everyone who can. I have one friend who speaks like five to six different languages and is learning a seventh. It's amazing. Some people have that talent. We have the talent for the Constitution. 
Right. So we hope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that was a resounding yes. <laughs> yes. <okay. laughs> All right. Well, cheers. Happy New Year. And we'll get started. Definitely very crisp. Almost a wake you up kind of thing. I don't have caffeine, but this is this is a good bubbly. All right, Dr. Vile, let's talk about this immigration issue. And thank you to our um, our listener and our watcher who actually asked for us to speak about it. I think it's a great topic right now. Um, it is, from what I can tell, a very novel issue, um, at least in terms of a state recently um, trying to enact laws regarding immigration. So what is your take as someone who knows the Constitution inside and out? What's reserved? Let's give a little context. Please. Which is, you know, the United States is, an, we've often been called a nation of immigrants. We've mm -hmm. been called a melting pot. We had very liberal um, immigration policies up through about the 1870s or 80s. Then we adopted a Chinese exclusion mm. uh, law. And in the and then again in the twenties we we tended to expand that to 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 Japan as well, and then you know during the thirties and whatever we were also somewhat restrictive. Um, this is a worldwide problem right now. There are as yeah. many refugees in the world today, at my understanding, is than there have ever been, uh, and, and with a possible exception, maybe at the end of World War II, where you had. A lot of displaced people in Europe, but sure. you know there've been wars in Syria, uh, persecute. You know, a lot of people fled Afghanistan, um, Latin America. You have both political <laughs> repression, right. you have gang violence, you have economic turmoil. Um, I I don't know if it, it doesn't it doesn't make our problems any easier. But it's important to realize we're not the only country facing it. Mm -hmm. And what what we do need to remember, it's easy to, what's the term? Uh, it's easier to make stereotypical judgments about other peoples, especially if their color's a little different, if they're speaking a different language, sure. uh, whatever. But... I think it's a rare person who immigrates to the United States with the with the purpose of raping or murdering American citizens, as is sometimes charged. It seems more now, like a, a way to have a better life, a more hopeful yeah. promise. Yeah. Now that being said, uh, there may not be, there probably isn't room in the United States for everybody in the world who wants to come here. Uh, we have long considered ourselves, and I think in many ways we are a promised land. Mm -hmm. uh, a land of economic opportunity, a land of freedom. Uh, if I were abroad, even if I were in a country that were moderately prosperous, I might think of coming to the United States to, to better my life. And there are processes for legal immigration, but there it's almost like winning the lottery. Mm. It's not a very clear pattern about the, the people that have the best luck in getting into the United States today are those who are relatives of an existing citizen. And this goes back sure. to a law that was adopted, I believe, in 1965 during the Johnson administration. And that has turned out to almost upend the way. And prior to that, immigration was largely on the basis, of, frankly, of race. We tended to uh, prioritize Northern European as opposed to Southern European or African, Asian 
uh, or South American. Um, but we, we, we are, we're party to international agreements that offer asylum to people who are facing political persecution and threat of death. So if you came here and applied, you know, if you applied for citizenship on the basis that you're in a very repressive regime and they've, you know, jail your parents and you're next on the list, you probably have a good chance of being here. Right. But if you come and, you know, whether this is fair or not, if you're coming here because you live in a country where gang violence, let's say you live in Haiti and gangs are running, you, you know, ruling the streets, killing people, yeah. kidnapping people, robbing people, and you want to come here for a better life, you're not entitled to under international amnesty law. You would be if you were a result of political oppression, but not simply for economic or, you know, or, or violence. So, you know, it's very easy. And I don't know what I would do. You know, it's very easy to say, I mean, the, the obvious argument against the illegal immigrants is, 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 if you use that terminology, is they're illegal. Right. They've done something illegally. Well, I shouldn't confess, but I did something illegal this morning. Oh, no. Driving... <laughs> I was driving 62 in a 55 mile an hour zone. Uh, and frankly, I had less warrant for doing that than many people would have for picking up their families and trying to get them out of a war zone. Sure. Or, you know, some, or, or I, you know, couldn't provide support for my family. Probably. And so let's go to America. You know, that's, that's the land of opportunity. So it's, it's really tricky. But part of the problem is, well, the question is, mm -hmm. and, and I have my thoughts on it, and I, I hope I'm wrong, but my impression is that, that in some ways, the people who are screaming the loudest about illegal immigration want to continue screaming. They do not want to catch the car and stop illegal immigration because it's such a good issue for them. And so you don't get a lot of cooperation between the executive branch and the legislative branch as to what should be done. So you have, okay. you, you know, it's it's too good an issue. Why give it up? Right. So, you know, We've are they the acting points. in good faith? I'm not really sure. Now, where, where you see this right now, you see it in two places. And one you've already mentioned. Texas. So Texas has adopted a law that says it's now a violation of state law to enter Texas illegally. Criminal violation. It's not Criminal even a civil violation. fine. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that. The major one is uh, Arizona versus United States. The Supreme Court decided a decade or so ago that this that the area of naturalization and immigration is a matter for Congress. That they have they have preempted the field, sort of like certain areas of interstate commerce. And so in Arizona, they rule, no, Arizona can't make it a separate offense. Now, what Arizona is, I'm sorry, what Texas is saying here is, well, that would ordinarily be true, but the national government isn't enforcing its own laws. That's their argument. So that's so why they're what, saying this is different. Right. You know, so what choice do we have? Now, what's very fascinating, and this, you know, you, you may have a three-hour program here if you get me too... <laughs> <laughs> on this podium for too long. But right now, we've the, the House of Representatives is starting 
an impeachment procedure against Alejandro uh, Mayorkas. Right. Who is his, uh, Homeland Security. National, or, yeah, national. And so they're saying he's to blame. He's not enforcing the law. Well, I don't know the ins and outs of this. But I do know that he is directly responsible to, to Joe Biden. And if Joe Biden doesn't think he's following the law, Joe Biden can fire him in a New York minute. Because he's part of the executive branch. He's part of the executive branch. And w- what is happening here, clearly, clearly there is not going to be a two-thirds majority in the Senate, you know, un- unless we find out that, you know, Mayorkas, you know, it is using slave immigrants as slave labor on a farm somewhere that we don't or know about. Or taking it. bribes or something Yeah, to taking that bribes or, you know, something which there's no evidence of. Um, but, you know, it takes two-thirds to convict in the Senate. For impeachment, frankly, specifically. Pardon? Specifically for impeachment. For Right. To, mm-hmm. I'm, so, I'm sorry. To convict it. To, if he were to be impeached by a majority of the House, it would require a two-thirds majority in the Senate, which you're not going to get with the Senate almost evenly split. Uh, Democrats are not going to vote for it any more than Republicans were willing to vote uh, for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And to me, you know, and you have the same thing here now with the president. So mm-hmm. Republicans are launching an official investigation of the president. Why? Not because they have any. Now, is there evidence against Hunter Biden? There seems Absolutely. to be. Did he violate the law? Probably he did. He's been indicted. Has there been a connection shown to this state between Biden's offenses and or alleged offenses and those of his son? None that I know None of. None publicly known. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you fish long, you know, if you put out a line, of, of, you know, even it doesn't have a worm on it. Uh, a curious fish might Picks get entangled and you, yeah. you, know, you might just come <laughs> up with something. But that's not the way that law works. And it's not the way the impeachment process is going to work. As far as I can tell, it's just sort of Republicans and Democrats would do the same thing in their own situation. But they're saying we're going to minimize these two impeachments of Trump by launching some impeachments of our own. And we'll just show that it's a political mechanism. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean... Well, let let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, Let me start with the impeachment um, and then go back to Texas, but all still within this immigration field. So with the executive branch, um, with Mayorkas, we've got him appointed to a cabinet seat by the executive. Right. Um, Can we actually impeach a cabinet member? Yes. Yes. Although... I believe it's the last time we tried to do so was like 1876, 1875, somewhere along in there. So, I mean, can you? Yes. Now, the more interesting question is, can you impeach a member of Congress? Mm. And the the weight of opinion says no. There are uh, the, other what, procedures, but the, not that, impeachment. That's right. They can, ex- as, as we saw in New York. With Santos. They expel a member uh, on their own. So mm-hmm. they have... So it's generally thought that, and this goes to an issue that comes up in the Trump case, that members of the Congress are not officers of the United States in the same way that members of the executive branch or the military are officers of the United States. Okay, so we can impeach him, but what are the articles of impeachment? What can he be impeached for? Okay, the same thing as anyone else. Treason, 
bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, which is a more difficult term of art, which includes, but may not be limited to, actual criminal offenses. Okay. In this case, apparently their argument is that he is not enforcing the laws that Congress has adopted. I would say Congress really hasn't adopted very many effective laws on the subject, and they're just sort of using him as, you know, it's just sort of a way of drawing attention to an issue uh, and embarrassing him. But in that case, I mean, we're I live in Maryland, and, and we've had many issues over the past decade of, well, are certain counties going to enforce rules of ice? You know, are right. we going to enforce federal issues of well, immigration or drugs? And exactly. And one of the things that the Texas governor plays on. He says, you know, mm-hmm. you have these cities who say they're not going to follow the law. Great. You know, great. We're going to busload our people there. Now, I have strong opinions about this that date back to my reading in the junior year of college of Immanuel Kant. Oh, interesting. Uh, he says, he talks about the kingdom of ends, that you should not be using persons mm. as means rather than treating them as human beings. And to load people on on buses or planes, particularly if you do so, which appears to be the case in Florida, in false pretenses in order to make a political point is really a sad political move, okay. my judgment. And I think Emmanuel Kant would agree with me. I believe he would, <laughs> based on my limited knowledge of philosophy. Um. <laughs> yeah, by the way, if you want to study philosophy, leave him a little down the road. When you first go to read him, uh, it presents quite a bit, quite a bit of a challenge. Well, not like any of the others are that much more easy. Well, he's particularly... <laughs> Heck lucid is it or, or not? Great vocabulary word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in going back to the Texas law specifically, so my understanding is the federal government, the Department of Justice has sued Texas. They have gone after the state <laughs> saying right. these are illegal um, or unconstitutional rules. And, and from the governor of Texas's standpoint, that's probably fine. That's exactly what he wants. To bring... Right? attention. Uh, let the national government take the blame. And, you know, to, to be a little sympathetic to him, it is a little easier for me sitting in Tennessee and maybe for you in Maryland to say, you know. We're not at the border. We're, right. We're not there. <laughs> then, you know, we don't have we don't have undocumented non-citizens coming through our yards and uh, coming right. into our towns, if you're lower into the economic spectrum. Now, part of the problem, by the way, is my understanding is if they come in, you know, through illegally, they are not permitted. They're given they're given a hearing, which often is two to three years in advance. We don't have enough judges doing that. But in the meantime, right. they're not supposed to work. So. You know, imagine dumping all these people in a city and telling them they just got to wait there for two or three years. Well, who's going to take care of them? Well, city of New York's going to take care of or Boston or Colorado. They're they're going to take the the costs that arguably come from inadequate national policies. So I I have some sympathy with these governors, but again, I, I it doesn't extend to 
you know, it was like I had some sympathy when when Trump was was president and we had so many people coming from the border that we decided we're going to separate women and children. But the last time I remember doing that in American history was was pre-Civil War, where okay. you could sell us, you know, sell us slaves, child, children out from under them. And I don't think that's the kind of, you know, kind of image that America wants to have. Sure. And I don't think it's a moral policy. And in going, I'm, I'm not trying to ignore you. I'm absolutely listening, but I wanted to make sure I was looking yeah. up our, our handy guide to the Constitution. Um, and as I understand it, I wanted to make sure I was in the right section and the right language. But as the expert, let me run this by you. As I understand it, you were saying earlier that the Congress has the authority one, over... Section eight is there we go. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and where I'm headed is, so we've got the power to lay and collect taxes, so the actual explicit powers listed in, in the Constitution for Congress. Enumerated powers. Enumerated powers includes um, it taxes, impose excises, borrow money and credit, regulate commerce with foreign nations, and then we have this other clause of to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Right. Um, so that seems to me very clear that this is a power regulated or provided specifically to Congress, the well, federal Congress. The, the trick there, now you, we have the Arizona case, which would imply that's the interpretation, but there are some enumerated powers of Congress which are known as concurrent powers. So power of taxation is one. That Not only can Uncle Sam tax me, but so can the state of Tennessee. So this arguably could be an area where you would have a degree of regulation by both, but the national government is arguing, and, and I mean, there's certainly good arguments for saying there ought to be a uniform national policy. Mm -hmm. You should be able to, you know, come in free if you come in the port of New York and be thrown in jail if you come through Texas or, or vice versa. Sure. Okay. So, yeah. And I mean, that also gets us to the supremacy clause, right? Which is a lot yes. of this is that the federal rules are supposed to be the supreme law of the land. Right. Well, the Constitution and federal federal laws and treaties made there, <laughs> there under are the, are the supreme law of the land. That's right. Well, let's talk real quick about treaties. Um, this is... It, okay. We're, we're sort of, we're at least on the same issue of, of foreign governments yeah. um, and yeah. for rules among foreign powers and how we're dealing with that. So we also had another listener recently who asked us about treaties. And since we're in the text of the Constitution, I think this is a perfect place to say, okay, what are the rules then for the executive? We've got the legislative branch, which is over naturalization, over immigration. Okay. But according to the executive powers... The treaties, I believe, the power to make treaties, at least, is with the president. Is that correct? You're halfway there. Okay. President negotiates treaties, makes treaties, takes two-thirds of the Senate to approve a treaty. Now— How to get out of a treaty. Well, okay, but but it's even more complicated than that. Okay. Um but how? <laughs> I just had it. Okay, we're, Let me we're going, get the Constitution we're going back too up. fast today. Yeah, I'm jumping. Um, well, right. what I was going to say is there are agreements 
so-called particularly executive agreements that are often made under the authority of congressional laws, which do not require a two-thirds majority of the Senate. And so sometimes the line between what is a treaty and what is not is not very clear. But I think where you're headed is there is concern, well, or maybe some people support it. I certainly don't. But since, since the end of World War II, and contrary, by the way, to uh, the advice of our first president, uh, who urged us to avoid entangling alliances, one of the keys to national security, particularly since World War II on, has been the treaty that we, that we entered, the, the uh, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, basically with the nations of, East, of Western Europe. It's now expanded some. But that an attack on one would be considered an attack on the other, on all. And this, is, this operates according to the principle of deterrence. The notion is, you know, Russia might attack Poland if they thought it was only their power versus Poland, but By if themselves. they thought it was their power versus all the nations of Western Europe, they would be less likely to attack. And arguably, this has preserved peace in Western Europe for close to 100, well, since 1945 and sure. or, or thereabouts. It's been a long time before we have had, well, since the Soviet Union, except for Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is not a member. It is an aspiring member, but it's not a current member of NATO. Uh, but it's worked pretty well. But one of Trump's critiques, and this goes back to his first election, was that he doesn't think the European allies have paid their fair share. Mm. We have paid more money per citizen, I believe, than they have for defense, which he says is arguably that it's their defense they ought to be paying for. It. It's their well, land. It's sure. Right. I, the, the wider view is that peace in Europe is to all our interests. We've been, we've been involved in two world wars, which have re required great expenditures of blood and treasure. We don't ever want that happening again. So the question has become, if Trump were reelected, he still seems to be, and particularly since the, the attack by Russia on Ukraine, right. he seems to be, he seems to think the best thing to do is get out of Europe, don't have anything to do with it, just let the chips fall where they may. So would he have the power as a president to withdraw us from NATO? My understanding is yes. Now, wow. I'm not saying I favor it. I don't favor it. I think it would be disastrous. But there is a precedent, and forgive me for not calling it immediately to mind. It may be Carter versus U.S. The US fact that you know any of these case names off well, the top of your head is impressive Well, itself. no, not <laughs> as long as I've been teaching. But there is a case that said essentially that Jimmy, well, actually the Supreme Court, it's it's more ambiguous. Okay. So the Supreme Court, if I, if I remember, decided it was a political question as to whether the president could terminate. It was up to Congress and the president to sort it out. It wasn't up to the courts. That's my recollection. But and that it, was with I Carter? It was a, yeah. If I remember, it was like a 4-3 or th there were very close decisions. So, But it's possible. Well, let's do it this way. The president can 
can only appoint members of the cabinet and the court. Okay. Well, let's stick to the cabinet. He can only appoint cabinet officers with the advice and consent of the Senate. Right. But. And this is clear, under Article 2. Precedents, right. Clear precedents establish that the president can fire a cabinet officer without the consent of the Senate. And so the, the parallel situation would be if the president has negotiated a treaty with, a treaty with Senate consent, he ought to be able, as he would with a, a cabinet appointee, to reject him on that. But, okay. uh, but that's, that's the current issue. Um, and it may be, I mean, th- there seem to be some efforts in Congress right now particularly if Trump were to be reelected to affirm up front that we don't we're not giving him the unilateral authority to exit from a treaty as consequential as NATO and then then the court would have to decide again is this a political question you know what do we do if one says we have a treaty and the other says we don't okay. now we don't know for sure that Trump would withdraw us so I, I don't know that that's officially part of his campaign but he certainly continues to gripe that, you know, well, if we haven't sent, you know, th- there's an authorization bill right now to renew our our support for Ukraine. And many right. Republicans are saying we don't want to. Uh, that's their fight. That's not our fight. Uh, the argument NATO would would give, you know, the argument from NATO is if if European countries start dropping. We're under- protecting you. Under mm-hmm. Russian domination, that could be a threat not only to them, but also to us. Okay. Wow. Okay. So we've gotten immigration. Yep. <laughs> we've gotten foreign treaties. Maybe we should run for office. Uh, maybe All we these should. solutions that we're offering. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, the closest I've ever come is when I was working at the Commonwealth of Newport News. Um, I, I had a couple of my my law enforcement friends who wrote me into to one of the ballots. It, it never went anywhere, but that was the closest I ever came to politics <laughs> other than these I comments. I think I had a former student who claimed that he once, you, you may remember him, who claimed that he once wrote my name in on a ballot. I believe it, I know so, who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he subsequently moved to China. So. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. <laughs> Now, so, okay, so we've gotten those, and we, yes, we should consider consider running. Um, but in the meantime, we'll continue our commentary um, of, of the laws. So we have a brief update, um, two brief updates on the section, the section three of the 14th Amendment regarding mm-hmm. disqualification of Trump, and then the privileges and immunity appeals. So let's talk about those before we end for today. Okay. Um, so- What's that? Colorado and Maine? Yes. You're going to go there? Yes. Let's talk about Colorado and Maine. Okay. So two states have now disbarred. Well, they have and then they've stayed the disbarment. But two states have said that Trump is ineligible to run as a Republican nominee in the presidential primary. Right. On the basis that he aided in insurrection under Section 3 of of the 14th Amendment that right. we've talked about on this show many, many, many times. And the Supreme Court has decided to hear it because while you have two states who have said uh, he's disbarred here, you have others who have said 
either for prudential reasons or and the laws the laws vary by the way per uh, state some, some some states tend to give greater scrutiny to candidates than others do but the supreme court obviously seems concerned and 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 what's interesting of course is you have predominantly republican court right now and one solution would actually one republican solution would actually be just let it stay that way um we have a federal system if some states decide he qualifies in their state and others don't, states have a role in federal elections. We ought to leave it at that. But I don't think it's going to go there. And, and the reason is, I mean, there, there are several questions that come into play, and we've talked about some of them. One right. is the 14th Amendment applies to officers of the United States. And as strange as it sounds, some people don't think the office of the president is an office under the United States. Which is the original district court judge for the Colorado case. That, that's right. Well, That was her ruling. Yeah, it was actually a majority on that. that that's right. The, the judge said, we think he was an insurrectionist, mm -hmm. but we don't believe he was an officer of the United States. Right. Now, there are others, by the way, who say, we don't think he took an oath to support the Constitution, the oath that he took was to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Which is specifically now, written in the Constitution it's as his written. oath. In my judgment, that's a bogus art. I mean, I, I can't think of any synonyms that would come any closer to support than preserve, protect, and defend. So I don't think those arguments are going to work, but they're out there. But I think the primary argument becomes, has the president been given you know, due process in establishing that he, in fact, was an insurrectionist. Right. He's never been convicted of it. Uh, does it require a criminal conviction? Right. Some people would say no, because you don't necessarily have a right to appear on a ballot. It's not a criminal punishment if you withhold access to it. But somebody has to sort this out, and that's what the Supreme Court gets paid to do. But isn't there, in the Constitution, isn't there a right not only to vote, but to have access to the ballot as a political candidate? I don't know where it would be. I mean... <laughs> Here I am. I'm saying something that I think well, is wise. I mean, and I <laughs> no, and, I, and, and I'm going to be embarrassed if, if a con law scholar calls up and says, you idiot, <laughs> here's where it is. Um I mean, we certainly, actually, the Constitution, if you, if you want to shock people, the Constitution doesn't specifically guarantee the right to vote. Right. The Constitution prohibits discrimination right. in voting on the basis of race or sex or age uh, above the age of 18, but it doesn't have an affirmative guarantee in the text of the right to vote. And so given that it doesn't, I don't think there is an actual, now one could argue, here, here you could argue that if you are 35 years of age, natural born and 14 years a resident of the United States, that you would be entitled to run for president because there are the qualifications. But that's sort of an indirect way. What the argument here is, well, section three has an additional qualification in effect, which is you're not entitled to run if you right. have been either part of an insurrection or you've given aid or comfort to an insurrection. So th there's one part of the argument in Colorado. The, the 
the lower courts rely very heavily on testimony. And if there are any sociologists listening, I appreciate you. I really do. But there are a lot of arguments that are based on the testimony of a single professor at Chapman University. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I just can't help but wonder, that's where John Eastman is from, and I just can't help from wondering if one side isn't reveling in finding somebody from Chapman who basically, he interprets political rhetoric, and he's come to the conclusion effectively that Donald Trump has been dog-whistling to his supporters to go out and do, you know, when he said, uh, you know, we, what, we've got to fight like hell, we'll never take our right. country back, that he meant exactly, you know, that his supporters knew when he said stand by and what, stand by and stand Can't. down and stand by. When he told that to the Proud Boys, that was his way of saying, you know, show up and do damage. Um, you know, there's a lot of reliance on this testimony from a sociologist as to what this means. Right. And again, not to put down sociologists, but, uh, ha- you know, what does that have to do with interpreting the 14th Amendment? Sure. So I think there's some real issues in the case in terms of, you know, what's the burden of proof? Uh, does it have to be uniform from one state to another? Uh, is the president entitled to due process in a case like this? And what does due process exactly involve? Does it mean he has to be convicted or does it only mean that you, you you know, you make a good faith judgment as to whether he was or wasn't an insurrectionist? So that, you know, there, there are going to be some fun cases to watch. Well, so now Maine is a little bit different. Maine well, has there come the Secretary in. of State exactly. has made the judgment, hasn't gone to a court. Uh, and, you know, God bless her as far as I can tell. She's seen, she doesn't see the, the interviews that I've seen. She seems to say, I didn't necessarily want this job. You know, they made me Secretary of State. Right. Republican voters said, we don't think Trump should be on the ballot. It was my duty to make a judgment, and I've made it. I've stayed it until it can get to a higher court to decide, uh, but I just did my duty. I think that's a pretty credible position. Now, with the Supreme Court review... Will the main decision be considered or will it just be limited to Colorado? I think Colorado and Maine are both, they've accepted both. Am I mistaken on that? And that's what I don't know. So uh, that I, would be I'm, fantastic it, if they did. It's literally a one paragraph. It's, it's okay. you know, if it were 100 pages, I would have read it. <laughs> right. We read those. <laughs> yeah, I, I read those. Uh, we missed the little ones, but we got right. the big ones. Well, I mean, it literally is, you know, we agree to hear hear this case. And I, I think it involves both. I, I don't think it makes much difference. Um, I think whatever they decide would end up being considered good law in, in these and in other states. But it, it's, I mean, it'll be a consequential decision. A lot of people are comparing it. Yes. You, you know, and one of the things, say comparing it to Bush versus Gore versus okay. 2000, but one of the interesting arguments that Trump has made is that the 14th Amendment doesn't prevent you from running for office. It, it prevents you from taking office, which would then push it back. If he were to win office, then you'd have another Bush versus Gore in 2024. Well, he was right. elected. Does that mean, you know, the people have spoken or is the Constitution still supreme over what the current majority of the people or the Electoral College 
might decide. Well, I worry that we're going to have three different time periods. That we're going to have this one, yeah. which is specifically related to the primaries. Right, and, and then we'll get another one. Exactly, yeah. we'll get another yeah. one for the actual election. Can he be on the full election ballot versus just the primaries? Right. And then, if he wins or if he doesn't win, right. I, I feel like it's a three-part series. Yeah, and and I think it, you know, in that in that respect, I think it would be wise that the Supreme Court you know, could give guidance on this and do it early. But can they? Because the sure. the Supreme Court can't give advisory opinions. And those are opinions about things that haven't happened yet. Um, they have to take up no, cases and But they and can engage in obiter dicta. <laughs> that they can, in their reasoning of the decision, they can show you enough about what they're thinking that a prudent person would know Here's how they're going to decide next time. Now, okay. things can still change between now and then. Um, but I think they will probably, I, I don't I don't like to predict court deci- court decisions here. I the easiest thing to do would be to cl- to do what the Colorado lower court did and simply declare that he's not an officer, so it doesn't apply. But I think in some ways that's the least satisfactory. Mm-hmm. The, the notion that you can be, you, you hold the highest office in the land and you're still not considered an officer of the United States, that's almost like Alice in Wonderland kind of thinking to me. Well, the first time you and I started talking about it, um, months ago, when the, the issue first came up, I remember you telling me that argument of there's this other argument. I was like, right. I don't understand. It, the initial no. reaction is this seems ludicrous. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very textualist based argument. Yeah, but it seems to defy the common sense of the matter. Right, the the letter, it but seems, not the spirit of the it law. Seem, it seems to it seems like the you, you yeah the, the spirit that that may be a good way of phrasing. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's head to the the secondary topic of Trump, and then I want to get to the books that you you've been okay. reading that yeah, I think are books. great for our our recommended you know listeners. That's right. We to need read. to get people reading early in the year. Exactly. Good. You know, a, a great New Year's resolution to read more. Um, and we've got just the books for you. But before we get there, let's I talk. I, I know you have been especially excited um, about. <laughs> to talk about have, okay. this appeal, the D.C. appeal you regarding presidential up, okay? immunity. Okay. So the president is claiming that anything within the outward limits of his official acts as president are immune from criminal prosecution. And this is specifically in regard to the D.C. federal case by Jack Smith. Right. Okay. Right. And as it turns out, to my knowledge, I think I'm right on this. The Supreme Court has never decided whether a president has criminal immunity. Now, Trump's attorneys say this must mean that he does because we haven't had a case in 200 years plus where we prosecuted a president. Right. And now, the response, of course, is we've never had a case in 200 years where we've had a president who is in five different courtrooms even as we speak. Right. Um but part of the argument, of course, now it's not an actual, the argument relates to speech. 
when when Trump supports addresses his supporters about the election, and maybe even says untruths or half truths, uh, he may be protected by the First Amendment unless the speech is considered an excitement to imminent lawless violent action, which applies to any of us. It it applies to any any of us. That that that's right. But he would say. Uh, and he, he goes on to say anything, any calls that he made to state officials about the election, that was part of his job as, as president in ensuring electoral accountability. Instead uh, of just person right. doing it for now, his, his personal prosecutors interest. say, no, it's not the duty of a president to run for re-election. Hmm. When he does this, it's, it's like, I think we've talked about this before, when a sitting president goes to give a speech, if he gives a speech on national issues, the government pays for it. Mm. If he's running for president and he's going to accept a presidential nomination, he pays for it. They don't fund his television ads. That, 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 that's right. And so the, the question here is, I mean, first we'd have to decide, did he commit a crime? Right. But, which uh, Smith says that he did, he did. Now the question is, is he immune because he did it when he was president? Right. And I think, unrealistically, the president's parties are demanding, are saying he has absolute immunity. For whatever he does during right. office. Uh, which would include rape, murder, armed robbery, uh, anything else you could think of. Right, becoming dictator. You know, I mean, you, I mean you could literally could now do whatever you could go into wanted. the House of Representatives, shoot the Speaker of the House, and say, this I'm, was within the ambit of my duties because I'm in charge of dealing with the legislature and I've just done it. Right, and, and so, that's what I feel is is a little bit handed... I don't know, tongue in cheek maybe is the, the best thing to, to say is, well, you know, why would Trump or anybody stand for Biden coming and doing whatever he wanted, claiming well, he's right. president you, you, and he can do whatever he wants? To, to Republicans, you're giving the same kind of immunity mm -hmm. to Democrats. Uh, you, absolutely. I We'd mean, all want to be president. We can be lord over well, the country. I don't <laughs> you know. know. I can I, do whatever I, I wanted. If we go back to philosophy... Uh, it would be a curse to be to be tempted. You know the what is it? The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You're going after the ring that makes you invisible because then you can do no wrong. Well, right. You can. Do you really want to be in that moral position? You, you know, you're paving the road to hell for yourself. Right. So probably we don't. But here's 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 the beauty. Yeah. So in this brief, the legal brief. Okay. This is this is Trump's brief. On January the 2nd of 2024, so I'm going to read it to you because you, you can hardly believe it if you don't. Let's see. The government's brief amidst the vigorous disputes and questions about the actual outcome of the 2020 presidential election. So they're still arguing, as Trump is, that the 2020 election went to him. And by the way, I got to stop here. Okay. There's the most fascinating argument that's been raised lately that Trump is ineligible to run for office because, according to him, he's already been elected twice. <laughs> and you can only have two terms. Okay, okay. I like that argument. That's I, I clever. Like your, I mean, it's not going to go anywhere, <laughs> but I like it. Okay. So, the government's brief amidst the vigorous disputes, disputes that date back to November 20th, 
to November 2020 continue to this day in our nation's political discourse and are based on extensive information about widespread fraud and irregularities in the 2020 election. Now, citation. Seems like an irregular argument. One okay, he continues here's the citation. I'm reading from you, you, I want people to know I'm reading. Okay. <laughs> C-E-G, for example. Donald J. Trump at the real Donald Trump, true social, date January 2nd, 2024. The day they're filing the brief, they're citing arguments that Trump is making on social, social media, media regarding this, which in turn cites an anonymous election report. Now, so people will know, and I think they do, there were over 60 cases that Trump and Trump's people filed. Throughout the U.S. Right. Throughout the United States over election irregularities, there may have been one that it temporarily did something for him. Overwhelmingly, they said, no, there's no evidence of widespread fraud. We have not found any Giuliani has just been, is being sued, right, for... Defamation. Right, for defamation for alleging fraud. Fox News lost seven hundred and twenty-five million. Million, yeah, <laughs> millions or billions. Right. <laughs> They're all the same to a college professor. <laughs> right, a lot Born of money. A member of Congress, right? <laughs> in in any case, as my favorite term, apparently for for using, um, this is really crazy. That the president is essentially citing himself to bolster an argument that he is making in this particular case. I I just do not see. Now, should courts be reluctant to accept frivolous cases against a president for illegal activities? Absolutely. Yes. In the same way that I'm just making an argument earlier that you should not be able, from what I know, to impeach the hit of immigration and naturalization for not carrying out policies that are unclear or that the president doesn't want him to carry out. Right. So should you treat the president as an ordinary person anytime somebody has a grudge? Should you criminalize activity that's not activity and blame the president? Absolutely not. He's entitled. And he has wide, he already has wide immunity from civil cases. Right. Uh, U.S. versus uh, the Fitzgerald case. Uh, has basically said if he's doing it within the scope of, you know, he has to exercise wide discretion. And even when it's sometimes unfair, if he has the right to fire somebody, he has the right to fire fire somebody. Um, but I just, I, I really think of all the issues out there. Now, I think the weakest, the, the case that the president has right now is his documents case. The one in Florida. In Florida. I, I don't see any reason. I have seen no argument that would justify an ex-president in keeping and hiding and dis- distributing dis- or and the possibly sharing classified information. But the most consequential argument, I think, of all the arguments right now is can a president, and, and we still have to establish whether he has or not, but if the evidence shows that he engaged in an attempt to overthrow an election is he going to be responsible for it or not? And if he's not, let's not call ourselves a democracy. Let's not call ourselves a republic. Let, you know, or if we want to call it, 
I don't know, a banana republic, that's sort of a <laughs> insult to banana republics, isn't it? Right. Uh, I, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, that's where we are. I had a, um, in speaking, a very random statement, um, and completely not legal, but I've been watching another, I love British mysteries uh, and, and dramas. Yes. Um, and I've been watching a Canadian one. And one of my favorite phrases that has come out of that, and it, you're saying in any case, I've, I've heard a lot of one saying, be that as it may. Yes. So, very similar term. Be that as it may. <laughs> um, so that's like a good song. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good, for sure. We'll, title. we'll do that next. Okay. And, in all of our free team. Or maybe the piano play. You know, I'll play sure. the piano. You don't want to hear me sing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about the, the New Year's resolutions in the books for what, what we're reading, um, okay. especially you, and, and, and how it um, a, applies to the subjects that, that we're talking about well, today. You promised one other thing, so I'm going to tie that into the first book. We'll talk just a little bit about Claudine Gray. Uh, yes, Harvard. So we've had three people, three so college So much is presidents. going on this year, and it's right. only how many days in? Ugh. So three presidents were college presidents, recall, before Congress. They all gave squishy answers to right. whether students could advocate genocide and not be punished. Right. And two of them are now gone, uh, one of whom is Claudine Gray, the, the head of Harvard now. Her case is complicated by allegations of plagiarism that she did not. That was the additional credit. Yeah, some sources, and I frankly don't. Uh, I my own my initial judgment is that she was sort of sloppy, uh, but maybe not not malicious. I, I'm not sure. But one of the books that relates to that indirectly is I'm reading or just finished this Here book called "The Canceling of the American Mind" by Greg. Lukanoff and Ricky Schlott, they both work for FIRE, uh, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Uh, individual Rights and Expression. And it's it's a it's a free speech group. And they they cut at both sides. Mm. They think that, you know, for example, what's happening in Florida with the state trying to control state curricula, that violates academic freedom. Sure. But they also believe that many of the elite liberal institutions, many of your Ivy Leagues, often become places where people are afraid to express any opinion that isn't sort of the majority consensus. And that what they say, and I think the part that I like most, is they say, before we ever had a law of the First Amendment, we had a culture Hmm. of First Amendment values. And the law can only do so much. And it's important to call out people on both the right or the left to try to establish orthodoxy as to what can be spoken, what can be discussed in classrooms. Now, obviously, we have a little bit more leeway when it comes to K through 12 education. Sure. Uh, Parents parents deserve an input into what their children are taught. But particularly at the college level, the, and there's a, there's a one of the things I got out of this book that I, I went back to, re, to relook at. There's a statement a, called, known as a Chicago statement, uh, which was a well, Chicago statement, or is it named after the person? I should know because I just wrote an essay on it. But in 1968, 67 or 68, they published a policy which basically said 
the University of Chicago is not, as an administration, going to take political positions unless they directly relate to education. We will serve as a forum for students and professors to say whatever they want on whatever side, but we're not going to choose for our students and faculty what should be orthodox. And this comes across very well in Canceling the American Mind. Another book that I'm and just, you know, we're approaching, I hope everybody knows this, we are approaching the semi-quincentennial. I thought it was going to be called the Sester Centennial. But 2026, if I live that long, oh, you we will. will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of American independence. Maybe you can retire and then. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to be able to go on the gases from from this for at least another <laughs> year or two beyond that. But but you know, one of the great terms that came out of the Declaration of Independence, about which I have an encyclopedia, are the meaning of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is a book by Peter Moore. Uh, it's a very eclectic book. It talks about Benjamin Franklin. Mm. It talks about printers in New York and printer, uh, I'm sorry, printers in the United States, printers in Britain. It talks about Thomas Paine. But I got to tell one, there's just one wonderful story here, okay? So anonymous speech. Have we ever talked about that on the program? I don't think we have. Okay. I, I so, believe it's a new topic for us. Okay. So the Supreme Court has decided that Anonymous speech is protected by the First Amendment. Now, to be careful, this doesn't mean you should you, you necessarily that you have the right anonymously to accuse somebody of murder or adultery who hasn't committed murder or adultery, and, you know, libel. It's that, still that's, slander that's and yeah, defamation. But yeah. particularly in early America, most people wrote under pseudonyms. Uh, mm. Most famous work in American political history is close to it is. The Federalist Papers, which were written under the name of Publius. Uh, John Dickinson of Delaware, Pennsylvania, used to write uh, under the name The Federal Farmer. Um, but the, nobody was better at this than Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, of course, spent many years in England. And Linda and I got to visit the house where he stayed. Uh, wonderful experience when we were just in, in London. And so... At the time when there is a dispute between the United States and Britain over parliamentary sovereignty, because Parliament had the power to tax the colonies. And of course, the colonies are saying no because we're not represented in Parliament, no taxation without representation. Sure. So the argument is going back and forth, and Franklin's trying to uphold the, the, the colonial side. So he writes this letter to the newspaper, and it or or he writes this story which says, and it's convoluted here, but England and Prussia had been allied in a war against France, but at the end of the war, the Prussians didn't feel they had been treated very well. So according to this story, you know, news from foreign parts, Frederick II of Prussia is very upset with England. And he looks back and he finds out that most of England was originally populated by the Germans. And they have never received any recompense from this. And so the story goes that he is considering uh, tax, uh, uh, levying a tax on the people of England, and he wants all the merchants to come to this Prussian city and register and whatever. 
And Benjamin Franklin is at the equivalent of a cocktail party with these highfalutin people. And one of them brings in the news and he says, look at this story. And they begin reading. And one says, you know, by God, uh, it's time for us to to do something in response. You know, we got to raise an army of our own. And then one of them starts laughing and he says, you know, by jiggity, he says, I think the I think the Americans have pulled one over on us again. <laughs> and they all began laughing about this. And none of them realized that the person who wrote it is sitting there or standing there in the room at the time. Oh, how and funny. he's just going wild with, you know, this is really effective. I got somebody's <laughs> attention and they don't know who did it. So if you like rollicking stories like that, that's in this book. And, then and the third one. The third one. Uh, and these have all been good reads. Uh Kept me busy over the holiday. Uh, Matthew Martins, who was a former clerk for Chief uh, for Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, who is now, uh, I believe, uh, he's been both a prosecuting and a defense attorney, uh, a, a Christian. He's wrote something called "Reforming Criminal Justice: A Christian Proposal," and he deals. You would like this a lot, particularly yeah, having been a one of my next a prosecutor reads. and and a defense attorney. But he argues that in subtle ways, the law is often biased in a way that's against Christian principles. And he's particularly concerned, I'll pick out two areas, he's particularly concerned about imposition of the death penalty. Mm. Turns out, if you're black and you've committed a, a, a capital offense against a white person, you're like 45 times more likely to be convicted than if you killed a black person. Mm. Um, and other disparities that have come out. But the other one that he mentions that I've certainly known about and given thought to, but maybe didn't fully realize the extent of the possible injustice, he's really concerned about plea bargaining. And he's not so concerned, and plea bargaining, of course, is where the prosecution offers to lower the charges uh, in effect for a guilty plea. Or the sentence, or both. Right, and and this (laughs) often... This expedites criminal justice. If everybody went to a full trial, would be terribly so expensive backlogged. to do. But on the other hand, there's a coercive element here. And that is, and we know from history that people sometimes plead guilty. Ooh. You know, so you're you're up for the death penalty, and they say, Well, if you confess, we'll only give you 20 years in jail. Right. We'll save your life. What if you really didn't commit murder? You right. got a chance to avoid the death penalty. That is fairly coercive. Yes. And we've had cases where subsequently evidence has come back and said, we now know that person was guilty, them. but they confessed to it. Well, why did they confess? Because the law was putting a thumb on the scale. And of right. course, it's a thumb that's more likely to fall on people who are disenfranchised, people who are poor, people who have appointed, you know, the the other thing they point out is that while, you know, since Gideon versus uh, Wainwright, 1963, I think it is, while there is now a guarantee of counsel, there's not necessarily a guarantee of effective counsel. There's supposed to be. If you look at the typical prosecuting attorney versus defense attorney that's appointed, Prosecuting attorneys make more. They oh, have better yeah, chances for the promotion money, than absolutely. others. And so, again, 
it's it's an example possibly of the state putting the thumb on the scale, maybe for you know reasons of efficiency, uh, frugality, and whatever. But these are not necessarily up to the standards of biblical justice. Sure. Um, and he makes an, one of the fascinating theological arguments, and I don't know that you know law seems like law would be enough, but he makes an interesting theological argument which is that the primary the primary theme of the bible is love and that acts of justice are actually acts of love hmm. um you're showing love to a victim's family if you value the crime against them enough to punish the perpetrator sure and often particularly evangelical christians which is where i've where i've been most of my life although the term now bothers me a little bit but they often make sort of a harsh line of division between God's law and God's justice, almost as though you have two different, different. gods, you know, at <laughs> war with one another. And he argues, no, these are really, they're the same ball of wax. Um, and so I think anybody who, you know, who's interested, this is by Crossway, which I believe is a religious publisher. But, you know, this is a person with a law degree. Uh, again, you know, very well qualified. I think this is his first book. Um, but, and by the way, the, the other book I should mention, the, the Luke. Oh, a fourth book, one. The Cants, no, the, going back. Oh, the to original the, one. You know, the the canceling. Mind, yeah. He wrote a previous book, or I believe he co-authored a previous book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And the argument there was that, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes we're, you know, and he's obviously opposed to bullying and that sort of thing. But maybe sometimes we set ourselves up as, as a little too sensitive, and maybe the better thing sometimes is, okay, you're offended by what somebody says, respond to it uh, with a reasonable argument. Sure. Don't just walk off the stage and say, well, I'm not going to talk to somebody who I think is a racist or I think is a Democrat or Republican <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever your term of art is. And then he makes a good, you know, good case for saying, part particularly of collegiate education should be to be able to respectfully, the way he puts it is, don't assume that people who have different views of you are necessarily bad, sure. and don't assume that somebody who has different arguments from you necessarily has bad arguments. Weigh the arguments. Uh, don't don't make it a personal thing. Well, you right. know, Joe Biden, he's a Democrat, you know, I you know, hell with whatever he says. No, if he makes a good argument, accept it. And the same for Donald, you know, Donald Trump, like him or not, can make a good argument. He can. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, maybe just let's wind back up to go to go to immigration. If Trump has, if there's one issue that he has raised into popular consciousness, it's been the issue of immigration. Yes. Now, I'm not personally very satisfied with some of the solutions that he's offered, but the fact that he's gotten support in some ways indicates that this was an issue where people were not listening. Uh, people were saying there's a problem and maybe people in Washington were saying there's not. So right. we can learn even from individuals that we might be totally in disagreement with you know, politically. Right. They have a different party label maybe from a red state versus a blue state or vice versa. But we, we've got to get back to communicating with one another. And, and I, think you're, I think our viewers know that. 
this is what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. Right? This is not this is not a, a red state or a blue state, a Democrat or Republican. We're trying to assess issues. And the way I assess them, you know, take them for what they're worth. If Absolutely. I make a good argument, fine. If I just make an assertion, uh Call us out on it. And, and we appreciate the comments that we're getting. Absolutely. We appreciate the ones, especially that are saying, okay, here's my argument versus the ones that are extremely dismissive of, well, I just disagree. Well, it's, yeah, don't you know, swat me. Uh, right, just, okay. Then, just tell us the argument. Uh, right, then give us something extra. We we really appreciate those is, you know, whatever our opinions are, it's good to hear the the back and forth versus just the the name calling. I, I don't right. like those. Um, we don't name call here. We don't appreciate appreciate it or stand for it. So it's, you know, we're not looking for people to name call or to judge us simply on one opinion or, or something, but to open the avenues, just like you're saying, to open the avenues, to open the thought process, to open the ideas of, from a legal standpoint, from a political standpoint, knowing the constitution and the law, what does it seem to say? What are the arguments on each side? Whether, you know, whatever our opinions are, we, we try um, very hard to, to present them in the best possible light for either side with our opinion as to which one would work. Not ne necessarily which one is best, but which one's based on the law that we know and the constitution that we have is seems appropriate based on, on history. And so usually, yeah, I don't know you ever give warnings. You do sort of give warnings, right, that you shouldn't drink the whole bottle of wine. I, I try. Yeah, please, please so don't. I, <laughs> I cannot figure out if I'm particularly wound up today because we have so many issues. <laughs> Or because it's my first experience. Uh, you may not want to drink the whole thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I almost have to at this point, right? The fizz will go out of it if I do not. It, it will. You, you either just have to throw it away or finish it up. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm going to add. But, you know, only 10 calories. So that, that uh, you would think. But, you know, maybe. It's not a sugar high. It's the caffeine. Well, is it caffeine? It says it's Oh, it's lighter. caffeine. Oh, it's caffeine. There's got to be and, caffeine in there. The Celsius, I have some. And I, I, they tell you, I think they actually tell you on a warning to not drink more than two a day. Okay. Well, I know, what is it? The Panera bread? Oh, my goodness. Had, the charged lemonades? They've talk had about two, a legal issue. Two people who have, well, talk about a legal issue. <laughs> let's, let's go to Boeing. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Boeing, Panera, all okay. of this. Yes. Yeah, you're in a plane and all of a sudden... A chunk of the plane the size of a refrigerator sort of pops out and uh, your cell phone goes with it. I mean, talk about an indignity. Yeah. Imagine losing your cell phone. In an airplane. In an airplane. Right. I, I have to tell a quick funny story and then we'll then we'll wrap it up for those of you who are probably already dropped off by now. But anyway, one of the funniest <laughs> one of the funniest stories I, I remember in high school, my very first airplane ride. Um, we went with a band trip, you'll recall this, to to Hawaii. Um, it was, it, you guys were so sweet to save up enough money so that we could go on this trip. And, um, we were flying, we were not the only ones in the airplane who had never flown before. Um, it was just a huge trip. You know, and I suspect that I had hyped up. <laughs> oh, probably so, oh, probably so. But one of our friends, um, <laughs> Figured out not only were we new flyers, um, but there were, was an older couple in front of us who was also flying for the first time. And it's funny now, but how terrifying it was, especially to this couple, because all of a sudden the guy looks out and he's like, 
what happened to our wing? And we looked over and we're like, what? And he's like, are they supposed to fall off like that? <laughs> and I just remember this poor couple's face of sheer yeah. terror. I mean, I was already concerned, but at least yeah. I knew these guys. Well, um, but yeah, anyway. Back in the day, you know, the, they arrest somebody, Some somebody's at the airport and they say, hi, Jack. And the next thing you know, they're carrying oh. away. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Potential threat. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Well, Dr. File, thank you so much for joining us um, for to kick off our new year for 2024. We have got such a year ahead of us in law and politics, and I'm excited to share it with you. Happy new year. And to you. Click like and subscribe. And watch the energy drinks. Yeah, watch, watch those. Um, the bubbly is pretty good. Um, watch. I may the, not the, sleep for another week. <laughs> don't call me at eleven. Okay. I do also like to sleep. Um, <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much. It is good to see you. Happy New Year, and we will catch you next time on the Legal Weekly Wine. <laughs>